Watch has told you, we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, to be found on page 870 of your soft-covered pew Bible. Now hear the word of God as we are led to respond to God's love for us. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, or by water only, but by water and blood. And this, it, and it is the Spirit who testifies, <coughs> excuse me, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony of God, the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good. Well, can I encourage you to keep your Bible open at the passage that Basil has just read for us as I ask for God's help. The Apostle Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Heavenly Father, please open our hearts and minds to understand the message of the cross in your holy word. Please mould us and make us and shape us into the people you want us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the great privileges, really, for me, of preparing these talks um, is that every now and again I come across something really rather unusual, something that I actually wasn't expecting to find. Uh, And this week I stumbled across just one of these in the passage that Basil has just been reading for us. Uh, You'll find it 
in the second sentence of verse 4. The second sentence of verse 4, where John writes, This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, what surprised me is that in this verse, John uses the word faith for the first and only time. As strange as it may seem, you won't find the word in the original anywhere else in this letter or anywhere at all in his gospel. Now, of course, uh, he uses the verb to believe all over the place, but not the noun faith. Now, that's rather odd, isn't it? After all, this letter is about real Christianity. And everybody knows that without faith, you can't be a Christian. And yet, in two of the most important documents in the New Testament, John only ever mentions it once. We can't help wondering why. Well, I don't pretend uh, to have all the answers this morning, but I imagine that it's partly because faith was a slippery word then, just as it is today. People can make the word faith mean just about anything. Uh, Today, I think there's a widespread misunderstanding that faith is believing what you know isn't true, but wish it could be. And so some people say that faith is just a kind of wishful thinking that something might become a reality if only you wish or believe it hard enough. It's actually a terribly strong idea in our culture. Uh, I don't know if any of you were into Walt Disney cartoons, but if you were, were, uh, one of his cartoons is Pinocchio, and there's a song in that cartoon that goes like this. I won't sing it. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. If you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. Well, it's a great song. But does that actually have anything to do with faith? Does how hard you believe something affect the reality? Think about that. Imagine for a moment uh, two men stepping out onto a frozen lake. Uh, It's the middle of winter, it's been freezing for weeks, and both men step out onto the ice. One of the men is very confident, and the other rather doubtful. If the ice is thick enough, of course it will hold them both, no matter what they may be thinking, however sure or uncertain they may be feeling. Equally, if the ice isn't thick enough, they will both fall through to the freezing cold waters underneath. That is the reality. And the reality isn't changed in any way by the attitudes of the two men. If somebody went onto the ice uh, and measured its thickness using the latest technology and then said, look, don't worry, it's perfectly safe, well, that might have made some difference to the attitude of the man who was doubtful. 
his attitude to the adventure would have been rather different. But it wouldn't have made any difference to whether he was held up on the ice or not. It would simply change the way that he felt about it. Now, friends, take that analogy and raise the stakes much higher. Beyond time to eternity. Beyond this world to the next. Beyond planet Earth to heaven and hell. Beyond mere speculation to your own personal destiny. Now, there are no stakes in the world that are higher than that. There's nothing more important than your eternal destiny. So how confident are you? Will the ice carry your weight? Do you know that? Or is your security simply in wishful thinking, in trying to believe hard enough and hoping that somehow everything will work out okay in the end? This is John's concern in the passage we're looking at together this morning. Now remember, will you, that uh, John didn't write this letter just because he hadn't written one for a while and felt he ought to. No, he was writing during a time of shocking spiritual decline. And John's purpose was to steady the ship. He was writing to, to reassure Christians by reminding them of the essentials of Christianity. The things that you actually can't let go of without losing the Christian message altogether. And because we too are living in days when, frankly, many professing Christians are moving further and further away from the New Testament message, we have to listen very carefully to what John has to say. So, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Well, of all the things he might mention, John isolates three in particular, and I've put them for you on the inside of the bulletin. And the first of these I'm calling the key issue. The key issue. And the key issue in Christianity, my friends, is the offer of eternal life in the Gospel. John talks about this in slightly different language at both the beginning and the end of the passage. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with this, but I need to say to you that when you find one of the New Testament authors repeating the same idea at the beginning and then again at the end of the passage, it's telling us that that particular issue, whatever it happens to be, is vitally important for understanding everything in between. Now here, uh, John states the issue most clearly in the famous verses right at the end of the passage. Come with me to verse 11. Verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
So, what have we got there? Well, I'll tell you what we've got. We've got a belief statement. That's what a testimony is. And you can see that this belief statement very clearly links eternal life with God's Son. John is completely unashamed to say, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. So what is this eternal life that John speaks about? Uh, Is it perhaps a kind of disembodied state of existence somewhere out there in the galaxies beyond this world? I mean, if it is that, quite frankly, I doubt whether any of us would want it very much. But actually it's not that. Because the phrase eternal life means quite literally the life of eternity. John is actually talking about the life of the world to come. So all of a sudden, it actually sounds a great deal more attractive. Because we know that elsewhere, the Bible tells us that in the world to come, there's going to be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, just perfect joy in the presence of Almighty God and all his people forever. That, of course, is the the message of the miracles of the Lord Jesus and, of course, of his glorious resurrection. Those things are signs showing us what life is going to be like in the world to come. That is what John means by eternal life. And I should add, it's actually what you and I were created for. If you're not sure why you were created, let me tell you, it was for that. And in our passage, John tells us three things about this eternal life. First, eternal life is a gift. Just look at verse 11 again. John says, God has given us eternal life. So you see, it's not a prize that we can earn uh, through our good works or our encyclopedic Bible knowledge or our energetic ministry. None of those things. No, the only way to have eternal life is if God gives it to us. Second, John says that eternal life is found in Christ alone. Again in verse 11, John says, This life is in his Son. So, it was in order to give us eternal life that God sent his Son into the world. But how on earth did John know that? How do we know that John isn't making this up? Well, the answer, of course, is that Jesus himself said it. To help us get this clear in our minds, keep a finger in 1 John and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, page 754. John's Gospel, chapter 6, page 754 of the Blue Bibles, verse 38. John 6. Verse 38, page 754, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now you can't have a clearer statement than that, can you? Jesus came to give us eternal life. And it can't be found anywhere else. Well, come back to 1 John, and notice thirdly, that John says that for the Christian, eternal life is a present experience. You can see this in the very last verse of the passage, verse 12. John says, he who has the Son has life. He's using the present tense. You see, he's reminding us that Jesus has brought the life of the world to come into this present age and that Christians begin to enjoy it in a measure right now, right here on earth. So, to have the Son To have Jesus is to have eternal life. Now, we're going to see what it means to have the Son in a moment. But can you see that verse 12 helps us to understand what John says right at the very beginning of the passage in verse 1? John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now we all know, of course, that when a baby is born, there is new life that wasn't there before, and everybody gets very excited about it. But we also know that the baby didn't choose its parents, and equally, the baby didn't decide when and where it was going to be born. And in the same way, when a person is born of God, there is new life, eternal life, that wasn't there before. It's actually the miracle that is right at the heart of the Christian faith. God brings his everlasting life to us ordinary human beings when we open our lives to him. And he comes to live within us by his Holy Spirit. The eternal life of God is is planted within our human personalities. That's what happens when a person is born of God. But we don't control the process. We don't decide when and where it's going to happen. It is all God's work from beginning to end. And my dear friends, in Christianity, that is the key issue. So you see, the question is, Has this happened to you? John doesn't want any of us to be in any doubt about it. He doesn't want us to rely on wishful thinking so that we believe against all the facts but are secretly rather worried that the ice isn't going to hold our weight. No, he wants us to have solid answers to life's most important questions. So on the last day, 
when you stand before God and you give an account of your life, will he accept you or reject you? Do you have eternal life? Have you been born of God or have you not? That's the key issue. And John wants to help us know where we stand and so secondly, he highlights the key confession. The key confession. This actually comes in two parts and you'll find the first part again in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So how do I know that I've been born of God? Well, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Incidentally, that uh, that word everyone is uh, a very encouraging and great word, isn't it? Because it reminds us that there are no exceptions. There's no special spiritual elite. The new birth is available to everybody, everywhere. And to be born of God means that you believe Jesus is the Christ. Those two things belong together. You can't separate them. But what exactly does it mean? Well, the word Christ in the New Testament and Messiah in the Old Testament both mean the anointed one. Now that, of course, is a strange phrase. We we don't use it very much today. But in the Old Testament, anointing someone with oil was the, the act of setting them apart for a special job. It happened to the kings of Israel and it also happened to the high priest. Incidentally, it actually also still happens in the UK today whenever a monarch is crowned. It's actually part of the coronation ceremony. So, Messiah or Christ is talking about a person set apart for a special job. Therefore, Christ is God's special representative in the world. He's also the good shepherd, just as the Old Testament kings were called shepherds, and were set apart to care for the nation, to build it up, to guide it, to defend it, and to receive the loyalty and devotion of the people. So, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe that he is my shepherd king. That the one who was set apart by God as the atoning sacrifice for my sins has been given all power and all authority and will live and reign forever as king. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's about believing that Jesus is the Christ. That the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth who really lived and really died and really rose again is God's appointed ruler over the whole of history, over humanity, over you, over me, and over the whole created cosmos. And you see, I show that's what I believe by submitting to him as my rescuer, my king, and my God.
That is the key confession. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? If you do, well that's evidence that you are born of God. But now put that together with part two of our confession in verse five. In verse five, John says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that phrase expands our understanding because being a Christian is not just believing that Jesus is God's appointed representative, but also that he is the Son of God. And that's really important because in the first century there were lots of people who said Jesus is simply a man. He's simply the son of Joseph and Mary. And there were others who thought of him as, yep, a superhuman individual, but certainly not divine. And of course there are plenty of people like that today. They think Jesus is an amazing hero, a wonderful, wonderful person, but actually nothing more. But John is saying something quite different. He's saying that the relation of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, to the Father is an eternal relationship. Now why do I say that? Well, when John uses the phrase Son of in relation to Jesus, he's not using the phrase in the same way that we do. Because you and I use that phrase to describe a biological relationship. So my father's called Peter, I am the son of Peter. But John uses the phrase son of as a human way of saying that the eternal life of God the Father is also within Jesus. That's what that phrase means. And it's saying that Jesus is the Son of God from eternity. That there never was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And there never was a time when he was not the eternal Son of the Father. In other words, by using the phrase Son of God... John wants us to know that Jesus is nothing less than God himself. Yes, he was fully human, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but throughout his earthly life, he was never, never less than fully divine. And because he shared our humanity in everything, except, of course, for our sinfulness, as the Son of God, he is able to share the eternal life that is in him, God's life, and he shares it with us when we put our faith in him. Now, friends, that is the key confession that marks out someone who is a Christian from someone who is not. And you can tell this morning, in terms of these verses, which side of that divide you are on. 
Because if you're a Christian, you are able to say, I really believe that Jesus is the Christ. The one whom God sent into this world as rescuer and ruler. And I really believe that he is the Son of God. That he is divine. That he reveals the very nature of God to us. Jesus the Christ is Lord. Now you see friends, when when we believe that, not not just as a form of words but as the controlling reality in our lives, then we become Christian people. We are born of God. He who has the Son has eternal life. But of course, for the um, Christian under pressure, this isn't the whole story. John knows that in days when people are undermining the faith from every angle, these two things, the key issue and the key confession, raise some key questions. And John uh, addresses two of these key questions. We're going to look at the first one this morning and uh, I'll pick up and answer the second one next week. The key questions. The first question is, How do we know we really believe? How do we know our profession of faith is genuine? And the second question, which we're going to look at next Sunday morning, concerns the object of our faith. How do we know Christianity really is true? Now I need to say, we need to be certain about both. Because it's perfectly possible to be very sincere about something, but also to be sincerely wrong and for subsequent events to to, to prove it. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, playwright George Bernard Shaw. Um, In the early days of radio, uh, George Bernard Shaw was giving a talk on the peculiarities of the English language, and there were plenty of them. And in his talk, he said that there are only two words in the English language which begin with the sound sh, but are not spelt with the letters sh. And afterwards, uh, a listener, a lady listener, wrote in to say that he was, that he'd made a mistake. That in fact, there is only one such word, the word sugar. And so, uh, this erudite playwright sent her a postcard on which he wrote just one sentence. Madam, are you sure? Now, what about you this morning? How do you know you really believe? Are you sure? Because God wants you to be. God wants each one of us to know without a question of doubt that the gospel ice will bear our weight. And so, John reminds us of the three tests or proofs that uh, I think have already become good friends to us as we've been working through this great letter together. As you know, they are the love test, the moral test, and the belief test. All three of them are brought together in verses 1 to 5. 
Now, because we covered them, I think, fairly extensively in our recap just a fortnight ago, I don't propose to go over them again in detail this morning. Let me just make two comments about the way that John presents them here. First, please will you notice John puts the love test first. It's there in verse 1b. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Now you see, John puts that first because, of course, it was the troublemaker's lack of love that had done so much terrible damage in the churches in Asia Minor. Just to see the seriousness of this, and I really want to impress this upon us, glance back to chapter 3 and verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. John says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now you can't have stronger language than that, can you? And that's of course because the stakes are so very high. And it's warning us, you see, that if our heart attitude to a brother or sister in the local church is not love but hate, and we're not actually doing anything about it, then whatever we say we believe, let me tell you, the ice will not hold you. And it's time to face that reality before it's too late. But of course, if we do love one another, if we are concerned for one another's good, if we are actively encouraging each other in our Christian walk, well, that is proof that God's Spirit is at work within us, that we have been born of God. That's my first point. Second, John describes the, the lifestyle of the true Christian in a very remarkable way in this paragraph. In verse 4, he says, everyone born of God is overcoming the world. He actually says that three times in verses 4 and 5, so it must be important and we obviously need to think about it. Now you may remember that back in chapter 2, John warned us that the world is shouting at Christians, urging us to turn away from Christ and to conform to its pattern centred on pride and selfishness and greed and, of course, unbelief. And now here, John says that if we're Christians, we will overcome the world. Now, how on earth do we do that? I mean, is it all up to us? Because, quite frankly, if it is, I don't think we've got a chance. Well, fortunately, it isn't all up to us, is it? And that's why, in verse 4, John says, if we have been born of God, we already have the victory. Verse 4. Interesting word, that victory. 
In the original, it's the Greek word Nike, which of course we associate with trainers and running shoes. But of course it doesn't mean that. It actually means conquest. And the key to this conquest in verse 4 is our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now you see, that doesn't mean that we can overcome all these worldly pressures if only we believe hard enough. No, it's it's the object of our faith. It's the Jesus in whom we trust who is the source of our victory. Because he's already conquered the world, the flesh and the devil. And of course by his resurrection we know that he's even conquered death itself. Now I know that the the evidence of evil all around us is very real. And at times... The the force of temptation in our own lives is practically overwhelming, isn't it? But what John is saying is if we keep looking to Jesus, remembering who he is and what power he has, well, of course, that puts the power of these hostile forces in a proper perspective, doesn't it? Because... You see, if Jesus has defeated death, and we know that he has, well, surely he can defeat anything, can't he? And so it's as we keep looking to Jesus and trusting in him that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we find Jesus overcoming the sort of down drag of our fallen nature and enabling us to live increasingly according to his commands. Now, friends, I want to say to us this morning, I think this is very exciting. Um, Yes, it's, it's, it's a lifelong process, and the battle is fierce. But as we see more victories in our lives, victories over pride, selfishness, anger, greed, lust, everything that dehumanises us, as we find our love growing for our brothers and sisters in the local church, as we find within ourselves an increasing desire to obey the commands of God, these are proofs that Jesus the King is at work in us and that our profession of faith is real. But more than that, they are signs that God really has given us eternal life. Let's pray. loving Heavenly Father, we we thank you that our faith is not founded in philosophical speculation or in clever ideas thought up by men, but it is rooted solidly 
in your intervention in history when you came to show us your great love and mercy rescuing us from the world and the flesh and the devil and even from death itself. And so we pray that in our seasons of doubt and discouragement that you will help us not to look at ourselves but to look to Jesus and all that he has done taking great encouragement from the changes you're already making in us and supremely in your word of promise that he who has the Son has eternal life. We ask it in his mighty name. Amen.